I'm Amy Antonucci, and I'm here to welcome you to True Tales Live, coming to you from Portsmouth Public Media Television, Channel 98. Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide people with an encouraging space in which to tell their first-person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity. Using on-stage TV, radio, and public venues, and offering workshops in the art and practice of storytelling, we aim to help people bridge differences and build understanding and respect for all. While we encourage the development of storytelling skills with our monthly workshops and other assistance to tellers, this is not a competition. We have no ranking or scoring or judging. We believe that stories shared from the heart uplift and inspire us and bind us together. Through storytelling, people from vastly different backgrounds, places, and experiences can find common ground and connection. So our shows always, well, usually, have a theme to help get people's minds turning on what stories they might have on that subject. Tonight's theme is the best laid plans. I did a little digging into this, and I don't know, some of you probably know this, but that saying is adapted from a line in To a Mouse by the 18th century Scottish poet Robert Burns. And the line is, the best laid schemes, o mice and men, ganged aft ugly. And in case you don't speak Scottish, <laughs> ganged aft ugly means often go awry. And the, the poem tells of how he was plowing a field and upended a little mouse nest. And the poem was an apology to the mouse and also the admission that humans have the same problem of making plans that do not always work out. Tonight, we're going to hear stories on that theme, plans that did not go as expected for better or worse. We're going to have five tellers, John Tilly, Emily Spaulding, Greg Brown, Carrie Wendell, and then I'm going to tell one. Each of our tellers has a 10-minute limit for their story, and our MC Pat Spaulding, introduces each one to you. Following the storytelling, we do have an on-air interview of two of tonight's storytellers. But first, for the stories, let's welcome Pat to introduce the first storyteller to you. Thanks, Amy. This is really good to be here. We have a full house. Um, bright and shiny faces, happy to see you all here. And I'm thinking that um, maybe next year one of our theme can be apologies to mice. <laughs> I know that I have a few stories that could be based on that. Um, I've done in a lot of mice, and I've felt guilty about some of those instances, but I keep on doing it. <laughs> now, first up, we have John Tilly. He's a lifelong Texan who made it awry as soon as he could. It only took him 63 years. And now he's my neighbor. Lucky him, lucky me. Irish by ancestry and lawyer by trade, John has always appreciated a good story. Before law school, he wrote and edited stories as a journalist, and then, as a trial lawyer, he crafted true stories for juries. True stories for juries. John learned the value of both storytelling and horse trading from his grandfather, even before he kissed the Blarney Stone in Ireland. It sounds like kind of a gooey thing to do. Oh, in 2005. Tonight he'll tell us a story that I suspect was neither influenced nor inspired by his grandfather, but possibly by that Blarney Stone in Ireland. Its title is Freshman Year. Come on up, John. Thank you, Pat. It's always good to be out of Texas and in New Hampshire. <laughs> in September 1969, I found myself a brand new freshman student at the University of Texas at Austin. 
at that time a university of some 40,000 students, which in itself dwarfed the tiny and entirely homogenous West Texas town that I had called home for the last 18 years. As the song suggested, the times they were a-changing. As uh, the freshman class entered and tried to acclimate itself to this wholly new and challenging environment, the assistant professors in psychology and sociology decided that the freshmen might benefit from some structured uh, social interactions. Being the 60s, these were called encounter groups. <laughs> now the idea of the encounter group was a good one. The assistant professors thought, give the students, the freshmen, a chance to interact with each other in a structured and scheduled way to talk about their concerns and anxieties, and maybe the group could help resolve those. To us 18-year-old freshmen, these encounter groups were just an early form of speed dating. <laughs> and that is how I met Diana. Oh, Diana, she was an exotic Italian with olive skin, round brown eyes, and long raven hair that flowed like the Tiber. She could have fit easily into the court of Julius Caesar. Summoning up the courage that I usually lacked, I asked her out, and she accepted. Not so much that she wanted my company particularly, but she did want to see the new movie in town, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. <laughs> but, Diana said, there's one condition. I will not ride in a goofy car. I just smiled and nodded, thinking, I don't have a car. <laughs> but I did have a friend who did, an almost new red Dodge Charger with a black racing stripe. Bernie, I've got an unbelievable date Friday night. Let me borrow your car. No way, John, I've got a date of my own. We're driving up into the hills. It's a full moon, you know, and he winked at me. So I asked another friend, sorry, busy. So I went to Dennis. Now, at age 20, Dennis already had a comb over. And for whatever reason, his parents had spelled Dennis with one N instead of two. So his entire life, Dennis had been called Denise. <laughs> Sure enough, he was not busy on Friday night, and he agreed to loan me his car. A pale green, never been in the garage, 1957 Chevrolet. But, Dennis said, there's one condition. And it's almost 13 years on the road, the Chevy had developed a transmission defect. So, you had to sh double clutch from first to second, clutch from first to neutral, clutch again, neutral to second. Failing to do that, the transmission locks in first gear and only a mechanic can disengage it. Dennis, my summer job was driving a dump truck. Double clutch, got it. So Friday evening came, I showed up at Diana's dorm, we walked out to the parking lot and I indicated the car. Diana stopped short, and she stared. Now, there were plenty of people in 1969, just as there are today, who thought the 57 Chevy was the coolest car ever built. Diana was not among them. <laughs> Despite her misgivings, she slid into the passenger seat, and I slammed the door before she could change her mind. We pulled away and headed out through downtown Austin for the movie theater. And you know what? Things went well. We talked about our high school experiences. We talked about being new freshmen at such a large university. Conversation and laughter came easily. Things went well. We both enjoyed, enjoyed Butch Cassidy. I think she was a little partial to the Sundance Kid. But we drove to a short distance to a pizza parlor, and we shared pepperoni pizza, we drank glasses of icy Coca-Cola, and we continued our very pleasant conversation. At 11.30, we both agreed it was time to go. 
because in those days, girls who lived in university dorms had a midnight curfew. So we pulled away to the first traffic signal. When it turned green, I accelerated, and I forgot to double clutch. Double clutch. That transmission locked into first gear, and no amount of clutching or double clutching or silent cussing would get that transmission disengaged. We proceeded through downtown Austin at a steady 12 miles per hour. <laughs> Sports cars with girls in the passenger seat would speed by on their way to their dormitories. We stopped at every single traffic light. Cars behind us honked their horn, flashed their lights, and yet like the tortoise in the fairy tale, we made our steady progress through downtown Austin. The outside air was warm and pleasant. The inside of the 57 Chevy was decidedly frosty. <laughs> when we got within about two blocks of her dorm, Diana spoke for the first time since leaving the pizza parlor. Let me out, she said quietly. <laughs> Diana, no, it, it's still two blocks away. It's almost midnight. Let me out. I pulled over to the curb. Diana exited the car, slammed the door, and started striding toward her refuge. White Roman sandals clop, clop, clopping on the sidewalk, black hair swishing across her shoulders in the light of that full moon. So I pulled away and headed back to my own dorm to wake up Denise and tell him I had broken his car. <laughs> that semester, Ended, final exams, and the Christmas break provided some amount of refuge. And then it was time for spring semester. And all of the promises of, well, spring. Having demonstrated in the fall semester an utter inability to pass basic chemistry, I abandoned my pursuit of a degree in chemical engineering. And I transferred happily into the English department. One of my classes was math for English majors. I thought, how hard can this be? Now that class proved to be a colossal mismatch between number of students and size of classroom. Whereas only about 30 or so students had registered, it was scheduled in an auditorium that would seat 250 or more. So we spread out all over that auditorium. There were multiple rows and dozens of seats in between the students. You can imagine my surprise in the second week of class when someone sat down right next to me. I looked over into sky blue eyes framed by tumble down long blonde hair and accented by a quarter moon smile. Hi, she said, I'm Prissy. Was she ever. <laughs> I assumed that her birth name was Priscilla, but she had never been anyone but Prissy. Turns out Prissy and I had a lot in common. Like me, she had grown up in a small West Texas oil town, only a little over an hour from my hometown. In fact, our high schools had been fierce football rivals. Prissy, of course, had been the head cheerleader. And so I came to look forward to every Tuesday and every Thursday afternoon in math class for English majors to continue this conversation with this gorgeous girl who had picked me out of that entire auditorium. About the fifth week of class, there was a, an exam scheduled. So. I studied the requisite amount I thought necessary for math class for English majors. And then Prissy came in and plopped down beside me as usual. But she said, I didn't have time to study, so I'm going to copy off you. <laughs> now, just pause there a second and consider what this young lady is asking you to do. Just take the test 
in your normal way, and occasionally she may avert her eyes and look over. And for that, she'll be happy, grateful, maybe indebted. <laughs> Did any of these rational thoughts occur to me? <laughs> no. Without considering for a second the advantage that this arrangement might provide, my Christian Protestant upbringing came burbling up. Oh no, you can't copy off me, that would be cheating. And Prissy stared at me in silent astonishment. <laughs> the look of a cheerleader who had never in her life been told no by a boy. <laughs> she stood up, did an about face, and stomped away. She got to the aisle, turned left, went down four rows, and plopped down next to a very startled boy. <laughs> From my distant vantage point, I could see that conversation ensued, and evidently a bargain was struck. After the exam, Prissy and that boy got up and walked out together. And for the rest of that semester, every Tuesday and every Thursday in math class for English majors, I witnessed Prissy and that boy walk in together, sit together, and leave together, always laughing and joking with one another, leaving me sitting dejected in my auditorium seat with my head hanging low muttering the only prayer that came to mind. Dear God, please let freshman year be over. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> Good one. This seems too tall to me. Um, doo -doo -doo. Okay. Next up, we have Emily Spaulding. She spends her winters in Newcastle, New Hampshire, and summers at Lake Winnipesaukee. Not too shabby, Emily. Both are a long way away from Georgia and Alabama, where she grew up. Emily refers to herself as a rural Southern girl who longed to be more sophisticated. So she went to the University of Miami on a baton twirling scholarship because nothing says sophistication like twirling a baton. <laughs> I know this to be true. <laughs> Eventually, Emily found her way to New York City, where she worked as a cable TV interviewer and became a general manager and met her husband, Dick. Last year, she published her memoir, Red Clay Girl, which is available locally at River Run Bookstore. Emily says that she tells stories because you never know whom your story might touch. So let's hear her touching tale tonight. <laughs> of Furniture on Trial. Come on up, Emily. I want you to come with me back to 1955 to a little small town in Auburn, Alabama. And it's summer and it is hot. You might want to fan just a little bit. It's really hot. My sister, Janet, is home from college in El Paso, Texas. And the big event of this week that I'm going to tell you about is her boyfriend is coming for a visit. He's driving from El Paso. He is in the Army in El Paso. And this is, I would say, more of an inspection than a visit because we know that my mother will be sizing up Hank, and Hank will be sizing up our family and our house. Well, we were sort of a normal family, but there's one problem. When Hank opened the front door, the first thing he would see was this sofa with all of the springs sprung, and when you sat down on it, it felt like you were sitting on rocks. And not only that, it had a worn spot where this white was sticking up. It kind of looked like a cotton bowl. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? <laughs> okay, you know what I mean. Okay. 
So I was kind of worried about this would put the kibosh on Hank and Janet's relationship. He was coming late Friday afternoon and leaving on Sunday morning, so there wasn't much time for an inspection. But my mother must have figured out the same thing. So on Friday afternoon, she grabbed up her tapestry pocketbook and she said, Toots, come with me. We're going to the furniture store. So we went down. There's only one furniture store in this town, of course. And we went down to, it was called Grant's. And she went in and she said, now, Mr. Grant, if I buy a sofa, a coffee table, and a side table, will you deliver it right away today? He said, sure, Mrs. Smith, that'll be fine. She said, okay, I'd like uh, that coffee table and uh, that side table and that sofa, and uh, I'm going to go home now so that you can uh, deliver it, and I'll be there to show you guys where to place it. And he said, now, had you thought about paying? <laughs> and she said, well, i tell you what, uh, on Monday, if it fits my dimensions and my decor, I will come in on Monday morning and give you a check for the full amount. And she raced out the door. Well, that was a little suspicious. <laughs> anyway, so just as we got home, the men came in. They brought the sofa and placed it. They placed the coffee table and the side table. And then they said, now we'll take this uh, sofa back and get rid of it for you. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. Just put it on the porch where nobody can see it on the screen porch. And I thought, uh-oh, this is not good. But anyway, so on Saturday morning before Hank was supposed to come late afternoon, my father went down to have coffee with all the men in town who always had coffee at 10 o'clock at a place called the Grill. And as he was parking his car, now we never had strange cars in town, it was too small. Nobody wanted to come there, I guess. There was a car that had El Paso, Texas license plate, and it had an insignia that was for the Army, which Hank was. So he went next door. Now, there were no cell phones in 1955, of course, so he borrowed the phone, and he said, Toots, tell your mother that, that Hank is going to be at the house any minute, and goodbye now, and he hung up. Well, my sister, of course, went and curled her hair, curled her eyelashes, put on her best dress. And moms went around and straightened things one more time, the hundredth time that week, I think. And then, just then, the doorbell rang. Ding, dong, ding, dong. And Janet opened the door, and there was Hank in his uniform. Everybody looks great in a uniform. And he said, surprise! And then we all said, surprise, you're here early. Of course, we had known, but... So we all went in and had the, the dinner meal at lunch. Now, Southerners always have a company meal, and our company meal was fried chicken, biscuits, green beans that had been cooked to death until they were like mush the way we liked them, and dessert was apple pie with ice cream. So we sat down at the round oak table, and we ate the first course, and it was good, and everything was going so well. The inspections were really on target. And then we, my mother said, well, why don't we have dessert in the living room? And hey, you sit on the sofa and put your plate on the table and your drink on the side table. Oh, this was going so well. And I was the only one facing the window. And I saw this furniture truck going very slowly by our house, like it was looking for the right number. And it said G-R-A-N-T-S on the side of it. Oh, my gosh. What is going to happen? They're going to repossess the furniture right while Hank is sitting on the sofa. <laughs> and he'll have to hold his dish and his glass while they repossess the table and the side table. Oh, my heavens. Golly. But then the truck kept going. So I was tasting my ice cream about to... And I saw the truck backing up, and it turned into our driveway. And the men lifted up the top, and I said, Moms, look out the window. She said, What? And she looked out the window, and she froze like a captain who sees an iceberg right in front of this ship. But my mother was not deterred very easily, and so she got up, and she walked 
to the door and said, excuse me. And just as she got to the door, the doorbell rang, ding dong, ding dong. And she slipped out. Now, I had to see this, so I also slipped out. And she closed the door and said, you guys, you go back to that store and you tell Mr. Grant, I've decided the the furniture fits my dimensions and it fits my decor. And I will be in on Monday to give him a check and pay for the whole thing. Now, y'all go on now, you hear? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And so we went back in and sat down, and Hank said, Mrs. Smith, may I call you Esther? Yes, Hank. I have to tell you, this is the best meal, I think, that I have ever had. And she beamed, and he had dimples, and he smiled. And you could tell that the inspection was over. Now, thinking back, I think that three miracles Two miracle, three miracles had happened. One was that <clears throat> Mr. Grant had outsmarted my mother and no one else ever had. The second thing was that my mother paid for furniture when she didn't even know the price. And she didn't even say, now is that your super duper price or could you do a little better? And the third thing, the third miracle was that Janet and Hank were married for 54 years. And during that time, no one ever told him the story that the furniture was on trial. He never knew. <laughs> Thanks, Emily. Next up, we've got Greg Brown. This is the first time that Greg will ha have told a story here. He lives in Elliott, Maine, where he plays music, drums in particular, paints and enjoys writing until it gets too difficult. Years ago, when he was trying his hand at stand-up <laughs> comedy, he says he brought televisions up onto the stage and someone said, you must be a fan of Laurie Anderson. He didn't know who she was. Now, if you're old enough to have been cool in the 80s, you do know who Laurie Anderson is, right? Um, so Greg started booking himself as a multimedia performer without knowing what that was either. He has traveled all around in sailboats, played in jazz bands, been a bike messenger in Manhattan. That sounds like the most dangerous thing. Has published some satire and poetry, but he considers being the father of two daughters who still like him to be his greatest success in life. The story he'll share with us tonight is titled, We're Good People Too. Okay, Greg, want me to get this out of your way? I gotta stand up, I think. Is that right here? Okay. Well, I guess I'll start by saying uh, this is, uh, the date is December 23rd of this last holiday season, and I'm taking my daughters down to Boston from, El from Elliott for a three-day holiday. We, uh, the last few years have been a tradition of seeing the uh, Nutcracker at the Boston uh, Opera House. And usually I let one of my daughters control the radio, and this time, instead of music, I put on NPR. I just, you know, this, uh, the post-election, the, uh, this, uh, presidency coming up. I was just couldn't get enough. So anyway, Johanna's listening, Zoe's listening, and Johanna asked, Dad, do you think he really built that wall? Do you think that wall will be built? I go, no, 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 it's too expensive. It's just unfeasible. It won't work. It's just ridiculous. And she goes, I don't know. And then Zoe, as the news kept going, she goes, do you think they're really going to ban the Muslims, the Muslims from uh, America? And I go, no, 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 that can't happen. I mean, it's... Uh, I think there's laws against, uh, you know, outlawing, uh, you know, a whole religious group. I don't think that can happen. She goes, well, I don't know. It can happen. And then she goes, you know, there's an uptick in, in uh, hate crimes, and one of my friends is gay, and I'm concerned. So then I'm going, you know what? Put some music on. Put, put the music on. We want this. Let's put all this behind us for the holidays, you know. And uh, so about then, the music's going, we're having fun car conks out. Conks out in Saugus when it's where it's really thick with traffic. It's like last minute shoppers and close to the rush hour. So I go, don't worry, you'll start. 
and it did again, but then I got off on an exit, I don't know where, somewhere between uh, uh, Revere, Medford, and uh, Saugus, I'm not sure. But still, a busy road, and it's, it's stalled again. A cop got behind me, a policeman said, I'll stay behind you with a blue light until you get AAA. We can't stay here. It's a very bad corner. And I go, I know. And then he had to leave because it was busy. He had a call. So all of a sudden, a minivan pulls up. And these two guys get out and because I had the hood up. And they go, can we help? Uh, do you uh, need a jump? And I go, geez, I don't know. I don't think so. I, I know a little bit about cars. There was no telltale of what was wrong, whatever. And he goes, looks like your cable's loose on a, on a battery. Do you have any tools? I go, I didn't bring any tools. He goes, well, I, I think I have a little needle-nose pliers. He tightened it up. That didn't work. And he goes, you know what? This is a bad corner. I go, I know it. And one of my daughters, she's getting angst. She's on the phone. I go, don't call your mother. Don't call your mother. <laughs> she's calling her mother. Anyway, one of the fellows goes, There's a, see that fire station? I go, yes, yeah, it's 150 yards down on the other side at least. He goes, we're going to push you down there. We're going to push you. And I go, okay. So there was another fellow in the van. He leads the way. And they pushed me down out of harm's way into this parking, a little parking area, this fire station. And it says Revere Medford on the fire station. So I called AAA. I said, stuck here at this place. These guys are still trying to help me out. They're looking at everything. And, and uh, But again, it must have been electrical. We couldn't figure it out. And I said, you know, you guys must have, it must be busy time for you guys too. I'm having AAA come. I really appreciate what you're doing. There's not much more we can do. And... I pulled out my wallet just because they did such a great job just getting us over here. And I uh, was sliding out some 20s, and I said, you got to take some money. Go, they go, no, no, no. You just pay that forward. And I go, well, you must have, you have kids, maybe you got to buy some presents for people. And they go, you know what? We're just Muslims. We want people to know we're good people, too. That's all. And I, I, it caught me off by surprise. And I grabbed his arm and, and shook his hand. And I said, oh, my God, I love you guys. I'm so embarrassed sometimes to be from this country. And he goes, don't worry about it. It happens. And he goes, just make sure you have a good time and you get to Boston. And so they left. And in the meantime, a fireman let the kids come in, watch TV, eat some cookies. So they're chilling out. And, and then the dispatcher calls AAA, says, we're at the fire station. And I go, no, you're not. They go, yes, we are. We're at the Medford fire station. I go, this is the Medford Revere fire station. And I'm going, we got to get down to Boston. This, uh, uh, the nutcracker starts in like two hours. Kids are going to be disappointed. We have to check into a hotel. So I just go, God damn it, get this car running. <laughs> and so I just press every wire, everything I can to get. I, not thinking, you know, it might be the alternator, it might be something that I don't even know. I just press everything. I start it up, it starts. I get the kids, come on, we're going. And they get in the, get in the car, say goodbye to the fireman. And uh, I go, Johanna, put your GPS on it. We got to find the Tobin Bridge, get back out there. And so I'm just letting this car go full throttle, and I'm going, Hail Mary, full of grace, Lord is with you. I'm like, when my kids are looking at me like, because I took them out of church when they were little, and we never looked back. And they go, what are you doing? And I go, that's the only tool I have right now. And so I'm going, full of grace, Lord is with you. I'm like, Johanna goes, stop, take a left at Washington Street. There's a light. You've got to go down in the cemetery. Hail Mary, full of grace, Lord is with you. Somehow we get on Tobin Bridge, boom, we get over the Storo Drive, down, uh, past, cross Arlington, over Boylston, Stewart Street, there's the hotel, Revere Hotel, we go up second floor in the parking garage, Whew, we made it, but we have like an hour now to get ready, and so, I go, do whatever you have to do, and we probably don't have time to eat, uh, we'll stop at a Starbucks on the way, we have like four, five blocks to go, so, we're walking down, it's, the show's like 40 minutes, and there's a bowl locos. Uh, uh, it's like a, it was all Mexicans in there, and it would look like all beautiful food, all natural. I said, let's go in here. So we go in, and we had the best burritos and the best smoothies, all for under $27 for three of us. I go, can't beat that. That's cheaper than Starbucks. <laughs> and it was all great meal, and the people were so friendly. And it's like they saved the day for us to have something to eat, and it was good food. So we get into the nutcracker, 10 minutes to spare. It's all beautiful, and you know, in that second uh, act where we have all the dancers come out from all over the world, I go, you know, that's what we need to do is highlight the best of everyone's culture. You know, I'm thinking like that. So uh, anyway, get back to the hotel. Let's move on to the next day. Now it's the 24th, Christmas Eve, because my kids have. We're all relaxed now, and I, I was thinking about the, the Muslim that said, "Pay it forward," you know, and so 
I was just, every homeless person I saw, I was given ones, twos, whatever I had. Given every, everyone, even if they were faking it, I didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> have a one, have a two, have a five, if you play an instrument. So anyway, I just, yeah, I said, we're going out Newberry Street. We do the usual, like we did a lot. You guys can pick out anything except for a coats and $500 hats. Mostly we go to Newberry Comics. You know. So anyway, everyone was so nice. We had a great day. And then, uh, they go, you know that place you were mentioning we didn't have time to go to because uh, we broke down? You, can we go there tonight? And I was thinking of a fancy restaurant, but this was just Charlie's Bar and Grill in Cambridge. I go, yeah, we'll go there. And so they go, are we taking Uber or a taxi? I go, no, we're taking the car. I think divine intervention works for us. And they go, I don't know. But anyway, I took the car. We took the car right over the BU Bridge. And we get over to Cambridge, Elliott Circle. Boom, we're at the, this great little place. Christmas Eve, there's all kinds of young people in there. Uh, Johanna got to have her drink, and Zoe and I had our frat for the cheeseburgers. There were two African-American women and these two guys from Sports Depot Central. I'm going, how are they ever going to get... They started talking. They were talking about the Patriots. They were getting along, having a great time. And uh, one of the women kept playing the jukebox. It was the best jukebox in the world. It was playing soul and R&B I never heard before. It's great. And then Zoe goes, Dad, you know those old churches we were going by? You don't think it would be cool if we go to one of those Christmas Eve uh, a, a service tonight? I go, Yeah. So I said, look up one. And she goes, the UU church over in Arlington is having a service at 9 o'clock. I go, it's 8.30, let's go. <laughs> so we wrap up our uh, dinner and drive again, right right across BU Bridge, Boylston Street. I'm four blocks from uh, the uh, church. And sure enough, the uh, UU church is very old. It's a great church. Everyone's so friendly in there. And I go to my girls, I go, I got to go downstairs and use the bathroom. I'll be right back. I go down, it's all these guys in tuxedos. I go, what's going on? That's the Boston Gay Men's Choir. They're really good. You'll like them. I go, oh my God, that's great. Go back upstairs. Beautiful church. Everyone is so friendly in there, and it just felt so peaceful. And the choir starts singing, you're like in heaven already with these guys. So the next thing, the uh, woman, the reverend, she starts with this sermon, and she goes, uh, are we going to, you know, she's anticipating trepidation and anxiety too. She goes, are we going to be dealing uh, with sword to sword with this next uh, coming up? And, you know, that just turns into, nobody wins. It just turns into a, a bloody mess. But then she started with this story. And she started with a story about these, uh, this uh, family that driving, they were driving in the Southwest desert. They broke down and he had no, they had a flat tire, had no jack, no Western ranch, nothing. So, out in the desert, and I'm listening to the story, and I'm thinking, this is our story. So, I wasn't really even listening to it, but my daughters were, because I was thinking, oh, this guy broke down in Saugus. No, it's in the Southwest. So, I'm listening to the story, trying to. And I'm getting kind of emotional because an, a, an immigrant family comes up and pulls up and says, I have, uh, I can help you out. And he had the jack, he had the Western wrench. And they broke down, <laughs> he broke the jack on the uh, immigrant family, and he said, oh my God, can uh, I get you another one? He goes, well, the, the closest Walmart's like 40 miles. And the, the Mexican family went and bought another jack, brought it back, and this is all in the story. I'm getting all emotional about it, and because I'm, I'm like this, my daughter Johanna likes to look at me if I get emotional, you know. I go, pay attention to the story. Anyway. They helped that family out. They even gave them some food. They gave them some, they had burritos, actually. This is in the story. They gave them burritos. And uh, again, the, um, the family wanted to pay the Mexican family something, and they refused to take it. And so I guess to wrap this up, <laughs> the point is there are good people everywhere, and it doesn't matter who they are. Thank you. The truth. Thanks, Greg. <laughs> Next up, we've got Carrie Wendell. He lives in Exeter. I've known Carrie for ages because we're ages old, aren't we, Carrie? <laughs> He's the designer and technical director for the Department of Theater and Dance at Phillips Exeter Academy. Well known in local theater circles for many years, Carrie co founded Generic Theater of Portsmouth. Many of you will uh, recognize that name. Um, since 1982. 
And alongside his many theater involvements, he's also been a visual artist. He didn't just paint in high school, he sold paintings. And after majoring at art in Haverford College, he went to the Museum School of Art in Boston for postgrad work and teamed up later with local Portsmouth artists to create mural works. Remember that? Uh, paintings, big scenes everywhere, on walls, outdoors, indoors, all over the place. For 13 years he did that. So Carrie's story tonight will take us far from the local arts and theater scene to a long ago vacation on a Caribbean island. Let's listen to what happened in snorkeling in Dominica. <laughs> William Blake once said, the fool who persists in his folly shall become wise. You be the judge. <laughs> in March of 2003, I traveled to the Caribbean island of Dominica. Uh, my hosts were David and Sarah, who founded the Stockpot Restaurant. They're both expatriates from Portsmouth. David and I agreed to go snorkeling the first day that I arrived. I'd never done it before, but I said, I love to swim. So we rented some gear and picked up, picked up some gear from a, a bar called Clouds on the way to Champagne Beach in David's Jeep. Um, I should point out at this point that uh, I've been hard of hearing for most of my adult life, so my hearing aids had to be stowed away nice and dry and safely in David's Jeep as David then went on to describe the plans that we had for our snorkel adventure. Um, standing at the shoreline, uh, David pointed out over the rocks to one rock, and I heard him say, we'll swim around the rock, and if we have more time and I'm game, we can go further out to explore some, some coral reefs. So there were also some rocks immediately to our left about sort of waist high, but there was definitely one rock ahead. It looked to be about 10 or 15 feet high, maybe 50, 75 feet away. So uh, it sounded like a good plan, straightforward enough. So I put on my goggles and my fins, and we started walking into the water. Almost immediately, water started getting into my goggles, and so I had to take them off and empty out the water, and David looked back and gave me a thumbs up. I gave him a thumbs up that I was, I was set to go. The problem is this happened like four or five times. And so at, at that point, David was ahead of me and actually out of sight. It was, the waves were slapping, against my face and the goggles were a little blurry so all of a sudden I, I there was no David anywhere and I looked all around but I could see the rock the rock was still there so pretty soon I came to um, a boat and there were some snorkelers around it so I looked to see if David was amongst them no luck so I kept going toward the rock I remember that's what he said, we'll swim around the rock. So I just kept going. And after a while, I realized I had to sort of vary my routine and do four kicks and a breaststroke and four kicks and a side stroke and then the other side and four kicks with the backstroke. And, and I really was second guessing my choice to keep going, you know, but it, it seemed at that point that it was Almost, the rock seemed almost closer than turning around and going back, and I, I really didn't want to give up on the on the on this trip. But so I kept pers kept going. I started chanting to myself, "I think I can. I think I can. I think I can." The flippers were cutting into my legs. Um, so I started philosophizing about the Zen of snorkeling. 
Um, I am one with the rock. All accomplishment is effortless. This is not my pain. In the second hour, I started seeing the beautiful sights that I was looking forward to see. Fish of all sorts of shapes and colors, and the water was getting shallower as I approached the rock, and the rock was getting taller and taller. So at last, I, I got there. I crab-walked out and uh, just sort of collapsed on the rocks, took off my mask, looked at my bleeding blisters, and looked up at a 100-foot sandstone cliff. So I took a little bit of a rest and devised plan two. So plan two, I, I looked around, and, and I realized that this rock was not an isolated rock on the middle of the water. It was the end of a long, curving isthmus that defines Soufrere Bay. Um, I did decide that it, was, it would be way too long and rocky to, to walk back, so I knew that I was going to have to swim back. So I, my, my plan, too, was to swim toward a cliff that was sort of in the direction that I came, but not not directly there, but I felt that if I got to the shore um, and I was exhausted, at least I, I could rest. Um, you know, or if I ran out of out of light, you know, I could I could sit and maybe walk from there. Whatever, it just seemed like a, a better idea. So I started swimming again, and the water started leaking in the in the mask, and then. I just threw a little tantrum and yelled, and actually the sound of yelling inside a mask is pretty pathetic, but I was yelling, slapping the water, um, and then there were stinging jellyfish. So I, after being stung a few times, um, I realized I could sort of dodge them. So but finally I, I got to this, this next cliff, um, and I'd also, along the way, I'd seen a couple of boats further out, but they, they were not in shouting distance. So I, I briefly went ashore at this cliff and saw that the sun was pretty, pretty far down and that I really had to keep going. Um, I was in a race against time. At this point, the underwater views were spectacular. I even started seeing the bubbles coming up from the sea bottom. That was the volcanic you know, action there. And this is what, why it's called Champagne Beach. This is what it, one of the things I was really looking forward to seeing. So I, as I approached Champagne Beach, I had to sort of swim around some rocks and then just, again, collapsed on the rocks. Just, I don't know, a few minutes, just lay down there face down on the rocks. There was no sand. These were rocky, rocky beaches. And then I looked up and I saw David's Jeep was not there. So I'm thinking, is he okay? Did he drown? You know, I started worrying about David. And then it dawned on me, I don't have any clothes or shoes or hearing aids or wallet, no way to get anywhere. So I was going to have to walk up to the road and hitchhike to David's house. And so that was plan three. (laughs) <laughs> and as I started walking up there, I was greeted by um, a man who came up to me and said, have you been snorkeling for six hours? And I said, I don't know, it feels like it. But he said, okay, we're going up to the police station. And as we drove up there, he said, you were presumed drowned. There are many boats out there, including the Coast Guard, looking for a body of, and they had identified as an American swimmer. Um, so, so I got up to the police station. I was parched and shivering, and I could barely say anything. Um, and they made sure, they, they took my account, and they, they made sure they got the spelling of my name right. And then a radio reporter came and thrust a microphone in my, in my mouth and said, are you in shock? 
So then my rescuer took me back to the place where I, to the bar, to Clouds, and I returned my flippers and the mask, and Melvina, the owner, just screamed. She immediately got on the, on the phone with David and Sarah, um, and, and the townspeople just sort of gathered around me, sort of looking in awe at this, this crazy white man who had swum all the way across Soufrere Bay and back, so they were coming up and giving me fist bumps because that, that was good luck. So this, this older gentleman said, you will live to be 150 years old. <laughs> so David and Sarah arrived, and we started comparing our notes. And it turns out he had said to swim around the rocks, plural, the rocks were right there, right where we started. He just swam and took a hard left. I saw the rock, and I went for it. But then also, he had seen the same boat with snorkelers around it. He assumed that I was there talking with the snorkelers, so he didn't think anything about it. So, I mean, as a result of this misunderstanding, um, you know, I swam four and a half miles for six hours just through my stubborn way of thinking. So a week later, um, in another part of Dominica, I met a Canadian naturalist, and I asked, without letting on that it was, I'm talking about myself, I said if she'd heard the tale about the American swimmer. She had. She said, what a foolish man! <laughs> I had to agree. <laughs> Foolish, maybe, but very talented. <laughs> Last up, we have Amy Antonucci. Amy is our announcer here at True Tales Live, and she's been working with stories since uh, 2014 with this program. When she's not telling stories and running storytelling workshops right here at PPM-TV, she's tending to her bees, poultry, goats, and gardens at her homestead in Barrington, New Hampshire, Living Land Permaculture Homestead. Amy was recently named Lead Organic Gardener of 2017 by the Northeast Organic Farming Association of New Hampshire. Not too shabby, huh? <laughs> From 2008 to 2015, she helped take care of her aging father. This is one of the many stories that Amy accumulated during that time in their lives together. It's about a long and well-planned trip to New York City that didn't go quite like she expected it to. The title is, What's Important? Probably pretty good. <sighs> Amy, you gotta take me to see my sister. You just gotta. My father lived in Boston, and his sister Rose lived in New York, and they wanted to see each other. Both being in their 80s with limited driving capacity, this was an issue. I understood their frustration, but I had other concerns on my mind at the time. My father took care of my mother, who had multiple sclerosis for 25 years, and she had died the year before. What I had realized since then was that my father had greatly neglected his own health in taking care of her instead. I had stepped up, and I was taking him to doctors for his blood pressure, and his heart, and a torn tricep muscle from lifting my mother and that he never got dealt with, and a broken tooth, and a neurolo neurological workup. I was most worried about some memory lapses I was starting to see in him. I talked to him every day, and I worried about him 
more than that. And that's what was on my mind, not travel planning. But my dad fretted not about himself, he'd tell me. I'm in great shape for the shape I'm in. <laughs> and uh, did worry about his sister, Rose, whom he loved. They had grown up together in the Depression in Brooklyn. She had a love of science that she passed on to him. She became a chemistry professor in the 1940s, and he got his master's in physics. And it did sound like my aunt was not doing that great, living alone in a house. Uh, when I talked to either of them on the phone, the conversation sort of started to loop. How are you? How's the farm? What are you up to? And how are you? And how's the farm? I didn't think living alone was safe for either of them. And they were both really social people, so I like the idea of assisted living, with people to look out for them, activities to do, other folks to talk to. That's what I wanted for them. But they had watched their father die slowly of Alzheimer's in a drab facility in the 1970s, and they didn't want any part of being put away. My father's worry translated into demands on me. My father, my Sicilian father, I'll let you know, believed that it was my job as his daughter to take him to New York to see his sister. When I reminded him that he did not really feel comfortable being in a car that I was driving, he said, well, Steve will take us. So my partner Steve was, I guess, being given honorary Sicilian daughter status while continuing to maintain his uh, male driving skill points. Driving to New York was also daunting to me because I had my own life I was trying to keep up with, including a small farm that my partner and I had just started. So for about a year, I put my dad off. I said, we'll do it, just not yet. Then in the winter of 2012, both of them took turns for the worse. My dad developed the pain in his hip that made it clear he was going to need a replacement soon. My aunt fell in her front yard. It was discovered by neighbors, sent to the hospital, and now there was talk of some kind of cancer. It seemed like it was time to arrange the visit. Even just to leave for a few days, arrangements were tricky. My first challenge was finding a goat sitter. Luckily, we weren't milking yet, so that wasn't going to be part of the chores. We also had cats and chickens, but that seemed easy after explaining the goat care. Uh, at least it was winter, so the gardens and the bees could be ignored. Steve took time off from work, although he'd have to stay in touch via phone and computer. I canceled um, meetings and appointments and classes and set up lodging with my New York cousins, and we were ready. We went off, arrived at my father's house at the appointed time, Steve behind the wheel, and my father balked. Said, no, my hip hurts too much. It's not a good time. I don't think this is when we, we should do it. We're not going to do it right now. I reasoned and I cajoled and I pleaded, and it did not budge him an inch. He dug in his heels, locked even that bad hip, and it could not be moved, just like one of my goats. <laughs> I was totally exasperated. We had done all the work to get this trip going, and now I couldn't get my father in the car. <sighs> Feeling angry and frustrated, my own stubborn streak, probably inherited from him, kicked in, and I said, fine, we're going without you. <laughs> and we got in the car and drove off, even though the whole point of this thing was supposed to be to bring my father and his sister together. It was a 200-mile trip, and around mile 50, my indignation started subsiding. 
And that is when I realized that I was actually worried about seeing my aunt. She was in a nursing home now, and when I had called her to tell her we were coming, she didn't know who I was. I feared that I would see her confused, agitated, suffering. And knowing that my father was starting to show signs of going down the same path, I was especially worried to witness this. The idea of these two really intelligent people losing their minds just seemed like a nightmare. We had hours in the car for me to go from angry to worried. It was the following day when we finally did get to the nursing home. The staff brought us in to this large room with 30 to 40 residents in it. The staff had a big board and they were leading everyone in a game of hangman. The whole place, it was, this was early February, so every pink decorative frilly item all over the place. The group was not very lively or engaged and my anxiety grew. But then I spotted my aunt. I walked up to her, put my arm, my hand on her, her shoulder. She looked up at me and she beamed. I leaned in tentatively and she hugged me so tight. And I said, oh, you remember me. She said, no, who are you? <laughs> I said, oh, uh, I'm your, your brother's daughter. She said, wow, that sounds important. <laughs> this is not at all what I expected. She had no idea who I was, but this didn't bother her in the least. We pulled up chairs and sat down with her. So, who did you say you were? I'm Amy, your brother's daughter. No, I don't think so. My brother's younger than me. I said, right, but he grew up and he had kids and I'm one of them. She said, well, that does sound important. I started asking her instead about my dad, who she clearly remembered, and she started to recount all these tales of growing up with her beloved little brother in New York, climbing the back neighbor's walls and up trees, playing stickball with the neighbors, saving their pennies to go on the rides at Coney Island. But, she said, have you seen my brother? I can't find him. I want to find him. It was the only time she actually seemed distressed. My aunt was, or was an, an intelligent and accomplished woman, but she'd also had some tragic events in her life. Her daughter was diagnosed in her teens with schizophrenia, and I remember as a child my father telling me that Laura had died. I now know she'd committed suicide. Now it was like all of that was gone. It was lifted, and she was just light and happy and free. She told us more stories of the neighborhood, the kids and the cousins, and her first travels in Europe, especially Paris. She loved Paris. Even though she wasn't grasping who I was, she was sweet and affectionate. She took my hand in hers, then she laid it down, laid it down next to hers on the table, and she said, oh my God, what happened to my hand? Looked fine to me. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, look how wrinkled it is. Look at all those veins. <laughs> I was not sure what I was supposed to say. I, I said, well, you, you got older, so it's normal to have some wrinkles. She peered up at me and said, how old am I? I didn't think I was supposed to answer that, but I wasn't sure what to do. While I was working on an appropriate response, Steve piped up. He said, I think you're 80, right? Now, his own memory was failing. She was 90, but it's just as well that he guessed low. She said, 80? I'm 80? How did I get to be 80? I stammered, 
and I was flustered. I wasn't sure what to say. And finally, I just said, well, tell me more about Brooklyn and your brother. Tell me some more stories. And she was perfectly happy to go back to her teenage years and leave behind the idea of 80. I actually wondered what it would have been like for her if I had brought my father there in his 82-year-old skin. When we left, we escorted her back to her room. She took my arm. She smiled. She stood impressively tall for 90, but she's tiny, five foot at her tallest woman. I hugged her before we left, and she waved to us leaving, saying, it was nice to meet you. I knew this might be the last time that I was with her, but even with that sadness, I really felt as light as she seemed. I didn't have a sense of her suffering, sad, and lost. I just saw her smiling and happy, maybe more than I remembered her being before. It was good to get home a few days later. I called my dad to tell him about the visit. I didn't mention to him my relief at knowing maybe his future wasn't as bleak as I had feared. But I shared her good mood, her laughter, and all the stories she told about him. He was clearly moved that he was remembered above everyone else. He said to me, you know, Amy, I had been really afraid she wouldn't remember me. I didn't want to see her if she wasn't going to remember me. But since she remembers me, could you take me to visit her? <laughs> Please join me in thanking tonight's storytellers and also our wonderful big live audience. So fun to have people here. Uh, let's thank some of those who make this show possible. That's John Levering, Pat Spaulding, Steve Koval, David Frainer, Bill Humphreys, and Chad Cordner. Until our next True Tales live show, and behalf on, on behalf of all of us here, thank you for listening and watching. And now we're going to go to Pat Spaulding for the interview that we promised you. Thank you.